It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, unless you're the nation of Israel. Many of their neighbors are determined to destroy Israel. So what's happening right now? Where are the greatest threats and who's behind the trouble? Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book with Middle East Authority, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, before we get to today's news segment, why is it so important that we be looking at this subject? Well, I think Jesus gives us the uh, marching orders for that. He told us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but the wisdom needs to be there. And he also told uh, the people in his own generation that they could see the signs in the sky, you know, knowing when it's going to rain or not, but weren't able to observe the signs that were taking place around them. And I think God wants us to understand what's happening in the world because ultimately it's going to lead to the coming of his son. And in this conversation, we'll point to specific events, specific nations, specific things to be watching for. That's coming up in segment two. Right now, though, a look at current events in the Middle East. But I got a question. Where do you look for hope? I mean, in today's turbulent world, many people find themselves adrift in a sea of hopelessness and despair. What comfort do we have as believers? Well, Scripture makes it very clear that our hope is the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and frankly, who doesn't, we encourage you to tune in to Life in Messiah's third annual prophecy conference, Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church Israel and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what he is doing. Now to sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. But be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right, let's take a look at current events from the Middle East. Story number one, Russia, Turkey, Iran, and China brought together a block of countries in Central Asia that hope to become a counterbalance to the West. What do we know about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO, as it's known? Well, the SCO has been around for a while as a group of authoritarian countries in Central Asia that focus on political, economic, and security cooperation. It originally began as a group called the Shanghai Five and was a mutual security agreement between China, Russia, and three of the so-called Stan countries in Central Asia. Uh, The group has since expanded to eight nations, including India and Pakistan. And this year, Turkey and Iran pushed to join the group and were part of the recent gathering in Uzbekistan. Uh, The goal of the SCO is to unite these countries in a way that allows them to play a larger role in the world at the expense of the U.S. and Europe. Uh, They're cooperating to blunt the sanctions placed on Russia and Iran and, to a lesser extent, sanctions on China and Turkey. Turkey's deepening ties with Russia, China, and Iran have alarmed the West since Turkey is officially a member of NATO. China and India dominate the organization in terms of population, but it's alarming that four of the nations, Russia, China, India, and Pakistan, are already nuclear powers, and Iran is hoping to join that elite club. Mm. Now, while the SEO has great potential, It also has two major weaknesses. First, there are natural rivalries within the bloc. India and Pakistan have come to blows on several occasions. Uh, During the conference itself, fighting erupted along the border between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, and Turkey and Iran represent the two poles of Islam in competition to uh, dominate the Middle East. Now, the second major weakness is that both Russia and China have shown it's not good for a country to hug the bear or the dragon too closely. 
for all their criticism of the West, economic and military aid from Russia and China come at a steep price politically and economically. One takeaway from the conference is the need to keep watching the developing alliance between Russia, Turkey, and Iran. That could have prophetic significance in the not-too-distant future. And Putin's veiled threat to use nuclear weapons just this week, that's another grim reminder that a devastating war is certainly possible. Well, this Sunday evening is the start of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish New Year, and the start of the High Holy Days that lead up to Yom Kippur. Apparently, Hamas is hoping to stir up conflict in Jerusalem during this time. What do we know about their plans, and what might Israel do to block them? Yeah, sadly, Hamas is trying to use every opportunity to create tension between Israel and the Palestinians in Jerusalem and in the West Bank. The High Holy Days are a time when Israel focuses on Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Yom Kippur's centered on the high priest entering the Holy of Holies to offer atonement for the nation, and many Jews will crowd into Jerusalem during this time. Over the past year, the number of Jewish individuals who went up on the Temple Mount has doubled. Hamas's goal is to use the Temple Mount as a wedge against Israel and the Palestinians. They want Palestinians to flock to the Temple Mount, which they picture as being threatened by the Jews. And they're happy to promote tension, even to the point of rioting. Uh, Scenes of armed soldiers rushing up on the Temple Mount are used to inflame others and even cause greater unrest. Israel's plan right now is to try to stop the agitators before they can reach Jerusalem. They've been conducting counter-terror raids on Hamas cells throughout the West Bank. Earlier this week, they arrested seven members of a Hamas suicide squad before they could launch an attack. They've also issued restraining orders against both Jewish and Arab agitators to keep them away from the Temple Mount. They plan to deploy an additional 2,000 officers to watch over major events, and they're also doubling the number of officers on motorbikes to decrease response time. Now, watch for Israel to continue to mount raids on suspected Hamas cells in the coming days, and watch for them to restrict access to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount to keep any protests from spiraling out of control. From now through mid-October, Israel will be doing everything possible to keep Hamas from fanning the flames of hatred. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. On this first of four segments, we're working our way through a list of news stories, all based in the Middle East. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is a noted Middle East authority. I'm John Geiger. Story number three, last week, five red heifers arrived in Israel from Texas. They're seen by some as a sign pointing to the coming of the Third Temple. So what exactly do we make of this event, Charlie? Well, let's start by separating the reality from the fantasy. Uh, There is a growing minority in Israel who believe the time has arrived to build the Third Temple. They've prepared most of the implements and clothing and instruments that are needed, and about 500 individuals who are descendants of the tribe of Levi have been trained to serve as priests. But the one thing still missing are the ashes of a red heifer, described in uh, Numbers chapter 19, actually. Uh, They're needed to provide ceremonial cleansing for the priests so they can take up their duties. Now, according to tradition, there were only nine red heifers from the time of Moses till the destruction of the second temple. And there's been an intense search on to find a suitable candidate for the 10th red heifer. Uh, The requirements are quite strict. It can't have even two hairs of any other color. It has to be from, they would say, the third year onward, which means it has to be at least two years and one day old before uh, it can be selected. It has to be free of any defect or blemish. It could never have been used for any type of physical labor. Several possible candidates have been identified in the past, but they failed to meet all the criteria. And that's what makes these five new candidates so special. 
They were brought from Texas, and they arrived in Israel on September 15. Now, they're between five and eight months old, so they still have over a year to go before they can be thoroughly vetted to make sure at least one of them is qualified. Now, we know from the Bible that a third temple will be built before Christ returns as king. Uh, that's the temple that will eventually be desecrated by the Antichrist. And if a red heifer is needed before the temple can be built, then we ought to assume one will be found. But even if one of these five is eventually picked, that can't happen for at least a year. And once the heifer's found, that doesn't necessarily mean the temple will be built immediately. It just means the ashes have been prepared so the priests can be ritually pure once the temple is built. Here's the bottom line, John. I believe God is setting the stage for the final act of the drama that will end at Christ's return. Israel's back in the land, and several nations mentioned in the Bible are appearing to be coming together in their prophetic way. Uh, but be very careful about setting dates. Hmm. The time could be getting close, but as Jesus said to his disciples, no man knows the day or the hour. Last week was also an exciting time for archaeologists in Israel as an intact tomb from the time of Pharaoh Ramses was discovered. I'm really intrigued about this discovery just south of Tel Aviv. What do we know so far about what they've uncovered? Well, this is a story that's going to play out over the next weeks and months. Uh, while doing some work at the Palmachim National Park, a tractor hit a rock that unexpectedly revealed the entrance or the ceiling of an ancient burial cave. Uh, the cave dates back to the time of Ramses II, about 3,300 years ago during the Late Bronze Age. Now, biblically, this would be at the time of the start of the Judges. And it's likely that the area where the cave is located was controlled by Egypt or perhaps by the Philistines. Now, what makes the discovery so unique is that the burial cave had apparently not been touched since it had been sealed. Bowls and jars from as far away as Lebanon, Syria, and Cyprus were found, clay oil lamps with the burnt wicks still inside, hmm. bronze arrowheads were found. Uh, the Israel Antiquities Authority tried to keep the discovery quiet, but word soon leaked out, and unfortunately, a few pieces were taken from the tomb before it could be properly protected. Now, thankfully, most of the antiquities weren't touched. The archaeologists are going to, have to be taking their time excavating the cave because it provides an almost perfect example of burial customs during that period. Now, let's hope that they invest as well in security to make sure the site doesn't get looted before everything has been properly cataloged, photographed, studied, and then taken away for safekeeping. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East here on The Land and the Book. We're up next. It's a conversation about Israel's neighbors, a threat assessment, we're calling it. Who's causing the trouble and why? fascinating look at the threat assessment for Israel next on The Land and the Book. Every day, the President of the United States looks over a carefully prepared document known as a threat assessment. Where are the places of tension? Who are the likely troublemakers? What can we do to mitigate these events before they happen? In a sense, that's what we're about to do, or attempt to do, here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, seated with the host of The Land and the Book, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And you know, given the constant churning and turning in the Middle East region, we thought it might be helpful for us to sit down and share with you a very up-to-date threat assessment. What are the major threats to the Middle East and to the rest of the world? That's our focus today on The Land and the Book. But first, let's think about creative ways that you and I can share our faith with our Muslim friends. So there it is, the dinner date you've been praying about. It's on the calendar. It's there with your Muslim friends, and you're looking forward to having them over at your house, and you're thinking through menu items. 
can you offer pork when you're inviting a Muslim who's a little bit more liberal? Is that acceptable for dinner? Stefano Fair with Call of Hope, what do you say? What should be on that menu? Well, you see, that's a tricky question because maybe the other day you saw your Muslim friend taking a breakfast sausage and you're pretty Mm. sure that it was pork (laughs) and he didn't care. So maybe now you think, okay, then it's okay to come up here with the pork chop. I would say don't do that. Mm. They, They might not care as long as nobody recognizes it. But when they come and you give them pork, in most of the cases, they would say, oh, no, I'm not taking that as a Muslim. Also, maybe in regular life, they would really not care about it. And many don't. Let's flip the side of the discussion to uh, what might be good on the menu. Two or three main courses you'd suggest would be what? I don't know what you have at home. Give them what you like. Chicken? Not, not chicken, beef? sure. Chicken. Uh, yes, beef Spaghetti? is also everything. Everything you like. <laughs> but maybe not pork. I mean, okay. don't come with the pork roast. But everything you like, give it to them, and they will understand you do something special for them. A rather tasty conversation there, served <laughs> up by Stefano Fair with Call of Hope here on The Land and the Book. Well, if you study the Middle East, it's quickly apparent that there are no shortages of threats in and around and throughout that entire region. But what are the major threats that we should know about, particularly as followers of Jesus? Threats not just to the Middle East, but to the rest of the world. These are the issues we're looking at as we sit down now with Dr. Charlie Dyer. Hey, thanks for working through these significant issues, Charlie. And I think now is a significant time to be doing this. Uh, It really is, John. It's amazing how much in the world our attention is focused on the Middle East and that broader region and uh, how many threats there are to the world coming just from that area. All right, let's look at some of the most obvious threats as we begin, posed by a number of countries and regimes. We'll begin with Russian aggression in Ukraine and Syria. What do we need to know here? Well, you know, obviously Russia, if we were to describe it, it's a, a third world country that has nuclear weapons, which is what makes them so extremely dangerous. And they have a leader who's willing to use them. Putin's pushing to regain territory. He wants to rebuild the old Soviet Union. Uh, He's also pushing to replace the U.S. as a major influence in the Middle East. He sees a power vacuum, and strategically he's trying to position Russia to fill that vacuum. By the way, biblically, this also fits with the uh, description of an invasion that's still future, mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So though Putin may be pushing his own ideas, I think they're part of a broader plan that God himself has announced thousands of years ago. Charlie, do you think most Americans understand the seriousness of Russia's aggression in Ukraine and Syria, or are we just kind of lost in the Ukrainian struggle alone? I think we're lost in the Ukrainian struggle alone. Uh, We're not impacted directly by what Russia's doing the way Europe has been uh, with the cutoff of uh, natural gas. And so uh, in our case, we we might see the price of our gas going up, but we don't see anything else. Uh, We really need to understand Russia has Ukraine by the throat, but they also have Europe by the throat. And uh, it's very possible that Europe will soon give up its support for Ukraine uh, because of the inflation and other problems they're facing because of Russia. And uh, Russia's uh, economy that we predicted would collapse hasn't. Uh, As a result, uh, Russia isn't uh, weak. It isn't about to collapse. If anything, it's getting stronger. And Putin, I think, is seeing his plans come to fruition. All right, let's move our compass just a bit as we turn toward Iran and the Iranian plans for a Shiite axis of power extending from Iran to the Mediterranean. That's uh, frightening. It is. And uh, we need to understand uh, Iran's been joining with Russia and China and Turkey. 
to uh, help together reduce U.S. power and influence, especially in the Middle East. You know, Iran itself, they've gone through four decades now of Shiite fundamentalist rule. Uh, there's no sign of moderation, no sign of deviation. Uh, that's the part that the secular West doesn't understand. We thought that eventually their rhetoric would give way to reality, but in fact, they believe what they've been saying all this time. They're committed to the destruction of Israel. And I like this, John. They had a countdown clock showing the destruction of Israel, and they said it was going to be in 2040, you know, less than 18 years from now. Uh, but the clock stopped working in early July due to rolling blackouts from power shortages. So uh, that clock is no longer there, but that commitment is still there. As Russia backs out, at least temporarily, from Syria, Iran is trying to go in. That's part of that axis that they want to extend all the way to Lebanon, and they see themselves encircling and eventually strangling Israel. You know, Charlie, as you and I sit here talking, I'm asking myself, when was the last time, if ever, you heard a conversation uh, on public television or any news station or broadcast or cable system anywhere that uh, really speaks in depth about Iran's plans to uh, have this caliphate, this Shiite axis of power, as you call it, extending from Iran to the Mediterranean. It just doesn't ever seem to make even a cursory news story at home. And I think that's because the uh, news media is so secular in its mindset that it can't even wrap its arms around the fact that someone could be driven by religious beliefs that would cause them to make uh, such radical actions and uh, try and get a nuclear weapon and would use that nuclear weapon to destroy the nation Israel. That secular mindset is just totally tone deaf to the reality of what's happening in the Middle East, especially with that Islamic fundamentalism. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, host of The Land and the Book. And in today's guest slot, he's the guest. We're looking at a threat assessment. What are the major threats to the Middle East and to the rest of the world? Let's talk about instability in Libya. Again, this doesn't create many waves in the U.S., but you say it's something we need to be watching. It is. You know, and every so often we have mentioned it here on the program because I want people to be aware of it. But in reality, uh, there are two forces in Libya right now vying to become the head of the government the major power from the eastern side of Libya and the western side of Libya. But that instability has created other opportunities. Turkey has forces in Libya. So does Russia. And uh, they're trying each to uh, have an influence there. ISIS and al-Qaeda have had uh, work in there. In fact, they thrived when Libya was most troublesome. And as, as Libya sinks again into that chaos, uh, look for those forces to rise again. They want to expand eastward into Egypt. And uh, Egypt could become a, a target of even greater fundamentalism and greater instability because of what's taking place in Libya. And I also read that there are increasing dens or hives or homes space made for uh, terrorist groups in Libya. That's a huge concern. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the people there, you, know, you think, well, wh why would they want to have more instability? But they have growing tension. You know, their power cuts, their living conditions have been deteriorating. Uh, they've experienced this political deadlock, and uh, as a result, they are more open to anyone coming in that says, I have a way out of this, mm -hmm. follow me. And that's, uh, that's just a fertile ground for these terrorist organizations. Another obvious threat we should be looking at is the resurgence of the Taliban and ISIS and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. You know, we hear some about that, but probably not near as much as we ought. Your take. Yeah, you know, the Taliban has been back in power one year. Uh, the country is still in chaos. Uh, if anything, they are continuing to move closer to what they used to be when they ruled in Afghanistan, taking away the rights of uh, women for education, for example. 
we know that uh, our supporters of al-Qaeda, they're not so big for ISIS. ISIS bombers killed the top Taliban cleric in Kabul recently. ISIS and uh, the Taliban are different sides of the same coin. But what we may have missed, you know, we, we killed al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman al-Sawahiri, in drone strikes. But we heard that, and we said, yes, great, we'll look what we're doing to al-Qaeda. What we missed is he was killed in downtown Kabul. Uh, the Taliban was providing a haven for al-Qaeda. ISIS wants to replace both. Uh, we need to uh, see what's going to happen there. But what we do know is that the extent to which Taliban stays in control provides a safe haven for al-Qaeda to continue to grow. And they've never changed their plans either in terms of trying to export their terrorism to the West, especially the United States. Another huge trouble spot is in Turkey, where Turkish plans for a revived Ottoman Empire ought to bring more attention than they do. Uh, you got it right. And it's uh, President Erdogan there who continues pushing Turkey, or as they would now say, Turkiya, toward being a Sunni Islamic state. He uh, has uh, moved that country progressively toward a more fundamentalist stance uh, in terms of Islam. Uh, he wants Turkey to become, for the Sunnis, what uh, Iran has been for the Shiites. In, in that sense, he is the other side of the coin uh, from Iran. Turkey has been courting Israel. But in spite of those headlines, what you find then is immediately they then condemn Israel for something else, defending uh, themselves against the Islamic Jihad rocket attacks, for example. Uh, Turkey is closely aligned with Hamas, and uh, many of the Hamas leaders have found a safe haven in Turkey. So Turkey has plans for the Middle East. Uh, It's interesting. There's a dance going on. Turkey, Russia, and Iran, they all would like to be the dominant influence in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. is still there, and as a result, they find themselves being drawn together Uh, in a way that will help force the U.S. out of the region. Threat assessment. What are the major threats to the Middle East and to the rest of the world? That's our focus today on the land and the book. There are also some less obvious threats, but just as dangerous. Uh, Nuclear war certainly is an option that we're hearing rumblings about. It is, and it's amazing how much Russia has been using that as a veiled threat uh, and, and they've said they they could consider using nuclear weapons in Ukraine or against those governments supplying Ukraine with weapons. And Europe takes those threats very seriously. But we know India and Pakistan uh, both have nuclear weapons. Uh, they've had a tense standoff with each other over Kashmir for years. Uh, the flooding in Pakistan and some of the other problems in India could push those governments to make decisions uh, that uh, otherwise we would consider unthinkable. Uh, but it could keep them in power. So watch those two countries. Uh, the old scenario that we grew up with, John, was that a nuclear exchange would destroy the world. You're mad, mm-hmm. uh, mutually assured destruction. But a new study says there's a, actually a more nuanced the result, likely, of any nuclear weapons being used, although it's just as frightening. Uh, a nuclear exchange could generate enough pollution in the atmosphere to lower the worldwide temperature and cause famine. And according to the study, it could kill up to 5 billion people. Now, that's probably overstated, but... I find it fascinating that when I get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 6 predicts a frighteningly similar scenario. It says worldwide warfare is going to be followed by worldwide famine with a fourth of the world's population killed by sword, famine, plague, wild animals. Well, that's about 2 billion people by today's count. So some kind of a future conflagration really is possible. In fact, the book of Revelation says it's going to happen. And uh, could it be connected with nuclear war? We don't know, but we do know the results and it's going to be a frightening impact on the world. What about growing ethnic, religious, political nationalism? What kind of a factor is that in this whole powder keg conversation? You know, here in the U.S., we've seen the uh, growing tension between uh, black and white uh, in our country. 
Uh, but ethnic tensions are actually sprouting up in all other areas of the world. Uh, the Shiites and the Sunnis have violence. You know, we, we picture the Islam as one group, but in fact, they're two major groups that are really at, at each other's throats. There's a growing sense of nationalism throughout the world at the expense of others. As people see dwindling resources, uh, they tend to say, we want to put ourselves first. And uh, one of the worst things that could happen in the world is if the countries start cutting off exports of their products to others to protect themselves. Now, that aligns, though, with Jesus's prediction. You know, in Matthew 24, he talked about the end times, and he said it would begin with wars and rumors of wars, and then he says it'll pit nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Uh, So really, this growing sense of uh, nationalism and protecting ourselves at the expense of others is one of the characteristics Jesus said we'll see right at the beginning of the end times. So, Charlie, as we wrap up this conversation, what should we as believers be doing in response to this threat assessment? You know, I think we need to start by saying we need to pray. Pray for our world. Pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our neighbors. You know, Abraham pled with God for Sodom, and Amos prayed and asked God to spare Israel. And in response, at least for a while, God listened to Amos's prayer, and God negotiated down to 10 people in Sodom. Uh, so we need to ask God to extend his mercy. We also need to be sharing the good news about Jesus while we still have time. Second uh, Peter 3 says, One reason God's delayed his coming is because he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, this is the time we need to be praying and sharing the good news about Jesus. And finally, we need to remember that everything we're seeing is matching the Bible. And it's a reminder, God is still in charge. We've got hope when many in the world do not. I love it. A lot of darkness, but we have hope. And that's a threat assessment today on The Land and the Book. Well, we're going to turn the page and get to some questions, maybe one of them yours, next on The Land and the Book. Because the Word of God is an inexhaustible resource, you and I have an inexhaustible list of questions, right? That's why this next segment is dedicated to the things that are on your mind as you go through Scripture. Maybe things that uh, you think about as you ponder Israel, as you read headlines. All a part of this segment we call Question and Answers here on The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, a lot of people are wondering, where do we look for hope? You know, in today's turbulent world, many people find themselves adrift in a sea of hopelessness and despair. So what comfort do we have as believers? Well, Scripture makes it clear that our hope is the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and who doesn't, we encourage you to tune in to Life and Messiah's third annual prophecy conference. It's called Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church, Israel, and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what He is doing. To sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. Be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right, let's dig into our questions that have come in via email. You can connect, by the way, at the land and the book at moody.edu. That's what Ginny did. She says, I just read a column by a Jewish woman who wrote how the Talmud supposedly does not speak against abortion. 
She stated the Talmud says a fetus is only fluid for the first 40 days. After that, it becomes a part of the woman's body. She also said that the Mishnah describes God in eight different sexes. I'm confused. Also, is the Talmud what Jesus referred to when he spoke against the Pharisees, believing it was sinful to heal a daughter of Abraham on the Sabbath, but thought that it was okay to get an animal of theirs pulled out of a ditch on the Sabbath? You're on the right track in questioning the source of authority used by this woman. Instead of quoting the Torah, the Bible, evidently she based her response on the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, The Mishnah is the codification of the Jewish oral interpretation, and it's part of the Talmud. I think we need to make a distinction between what the Bible itself says and then how others interpret the Bible at different times. Uh, Jesus did provide examples of how the religious leaders in his day nullified God's word, as he said, for the sake of your tradition. And that's what I believe is happening in this column, certainly, where that lady's quoting the Mishnah rather than the Bible to determine God's position. Uh, So the ultimate question on abortion is, what does the Bible say about the unborn? And a passage that comes to mind, Psalm 139, where David said, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, In fact, he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret places. Uh, God knew the child before he was even born. Jeremiah 1 is a similar passage. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And there's other passages like that uh, that let us know the unborn were given the attributes of personhood by God. It's not a blob of tissue. It's a human life. Uh, And let me end, though, with a quote from Josephus. Uh, If we want to talk about early sources, in his work against Appian, he's explaining the essence of Jewish law in this regard. And he wrote, The law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all our offspring and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward. And any woman who appears to have done so, she'll be a murderer. In other words, Josephus represents the basic first century Jewish understanding of what the Bible taught regarding the sanctity of human life. And he says it extended all the way to the unborn. All right, let's go to a couple of questions in a series from Revelation. First, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 17 describe a great multitude in white robes. Is this the raptured church? Is the church raptured after the six seals and the sealing of the 144,000? Is the church taken out after 144,000 Messianic Jews get their anointed mission to preach the gospel to the world? Yeah, if I jump to the bottom line, I don't think Revelation 6 is describing the raptured church. I think the believing saints that are listed there under the altar represent people who will come to faith and be martyred, unfortunately, during the tribulation period. Uh, Verse 9 specifically says those under the altar are the souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they've maintained. And I think they connect with Revelation 7, you know, following the removal of the church, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel 9, where God specifically begins to resume his work among Israel. Uh, Then the 144,000 Jews for Jesus, if you want to call them that, are called and sent out. And much like the original 12 disciples, These messages have a worldwide ministry calling the world to repentance because the kingdom's coming. And the last half of the chapter then describes the worldwide impact of their message with this great multitude being described from every tribe, people, language who hear and respond to the message. Uh, So the church is taken out before the tribulation period. In fact, Revelation 3.10, Jesus promised the faithful church represented by the believers in Philadelphia that they would be delivered from the time of wrath about to come on the earth. And I see that in chapters 4 and 5, where we have a great gathering in heaven, which takes place just prior to the start of the tribulation period, which begins in chapter 6. All right, let's go to Revelation 14, verses 6 through 12. Could the three angels mentioned here 
be satellites proclaiming the gospel message one last time to a suffering world. Angel means messenger, and satellites could be bringing messages, perhaps from newly born-again people who would be running the radio or satellite stations. What do you think? Yeah, and I, I don't believe the three angels could be satellites. So while it's true the word angel means messenger, uh, the word as it's used in this part of Revelation refers to living messengers, not inanimate objects. Each of those three angels has a separate and distinct message to proclaim. And the phrase, another angel, which is used there, uh, is used three additional times in that chapter to indicate living beings, not something inanimate. Now, my point is, uh, here in the larger context, John seems to be clearly describing actual angelic beings rather than just using the word in some symbolic sense to picture something that might be inanimate like a, a satellite tower. Steve wants to know, do you think we're going through the seal judgments now? Uh, short answer, I don't think we are. I think the uh, seal judgments uh, are still future. In fact, I would say I see a basic outline to the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. John was told to describe what he had seen, and chapter 1 gives us that vision of the glorified Jesus. He's then told to write what is, that is, what exists now. And in chapters 2 and 3, he sends seven letters to seven churches in Asia, but he ends by applying what Jesus is saying to all the churches, meaning those letters for the church at large, not just those individual churches. And then he's told in chapter 1, verse 19, to write what will take place after these things. And it's no accident that that phrase is then repeated by Jesus as he tells John, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. That's chapter 4, verse 1. So all the events from chapter 4 on to the end of the book are still future. In fact, uh, after the gathering in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, the word church disappears from the book until the very end when we reach eternity. In its place, we read about the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and we read about a temple in Jerusalem and two witnesses who will look like Moses and Elijah in what they're able to do. Uh, my point, though, is the church disappears. Uh, the entire period, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, and beginning in chapter 6, going through the uh, chapter 19 in Revelation, are picturing that final seven-year period, and it's a Jewish context, not the church. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Our questions, well, they're from you, listeners just like you. Silas asks about Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Did Jesus physically follow Satan to those three locations mentioned in the passage to be tested? Yeah, and this is that section dealing with the temptations of Jesus by Satan. Well, the first location uh, for Jesus' temptation was the Judean wilderness, and that's where actually where he had been fasting for 40 days. Uh, chapter 3 says the devil came to him in that location. But for the last two temptations, the text seems to really clearly say Satan transported Jesus to the two locations. In verse 5, it says the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point. And then in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain to show him the kingdoms of the world. So Matthew seems clearly to indicate that Jesus was physically taken to both locations. David asks, how do you reconcile your position that the four beasts in Daniel 7 are the same as the four parts of the statue in Daniel 2, especially since the future tense is used in Daniel 7.17 concerning the four empires? The Babylonian empire wasn't still future at the time of this vision. It was almost over. Yeah, and the answer, I think, is found in understanding the, the Hebrew-Aramaic grammar. Uh, those languages don't have a future tense the way we do in English. Uh, they simply have perfect, uh, that is, completed action, and imperfect, uh, picturing continuing action. And whether that action is past, present, or future, well, that's determined by the context. And I'll give you a brief example. Isaiah 53, 
uh, describes the suffering servant, and it does it in the perfect tense. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was cut off from the land of the living. But the actual fulfillment was 700 years in the future. The tense doesn't indicate past action, but the certainty and completeness of the action. And I see Daniel 7 being very similar in interpreting Belshazzar's vision. The basic vision points to the four kingdoms, and the fact that Babylon had been in existence about 50 years really doesn't detract from God's revelation that four kingdoms would arise. Boy, a lot of ground covered today, and if you've got a question, why not send it in, the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next, right here on The Land and the Book. This is The Land of the Book from Moody Radio, and I'm John Geiger with our teacher, Charlie Dyer, who's about to open his Bible to Matthew 13 and reveal to us some hidden treasure, maybe even a pearl. Charlie sounds almost mysterious. Uh, Indeed, these are mysterious, John. All right, we're going to look forward to that devotional. But first, how about a pause as we take a listen to this testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and offers us this Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Graham. I've been to Israel three times now, and uh, I'm already planning the the fourth return trip. It's it's such a life-changing experience. It really makes the reading of the Bible, it changes it from reading in in black and white to to reading it in in full color. Uh, And and the thing that impressed me was so much of what you read uh, of the the places, it's still very similar. Uh, Galilee is still very rural. Um, The wilderness is still very remote. Jerusalem is still very religious. And and this is, uh, it's like stepping into the Bible and and having a, immersing yourself in, in its culture. I can highly recommend it for, for anyone uh, who would like to understand the scriptures in a, in a deeper and more a real way. I never cease to be amazed at the different ways that God touches people who travel to the Holy Land. Well, Charlie, ever since I was a kid, I've loved stories about treasure, especially hidden treasure. And I think you're about to take us to one such story. I am, John. In fact, uh, you may think initially it's uh, Treasure Island. You know, army hardies, shiver me timbers. You know, this, is, this isn't going to be talk like a pirate day. All right. But the two parables we want to look at might just remind you of those old pirate movies and pirate stories. Hmm. The first parable is about hidden treasure, and the second looks at a priceless pearl. So come aboard, matey, as we sail across the Sea of Galilee to search out the next two of Jesus' seven stories with a purpose. Now, we dock our boat at Capernaum just in time to follow Jesus and his disciples into a home near the shore. Jesus shared his earlier stories with the multitude, but beginning in Matthew 13, 36, he left the crowd and went into the house with his disciples. This gathering is more intimate, more focused. And after explaining to his disciples the meaning of the parable of the weeds, Jesus then launches into his next two stories— Stories about hidden treasure and an expensive pearl. Jesus starts each story the same way. The kingdom of heaven is like. The location has shifted and the audience has narrowed. But as he continues his seven stories with a purpose, the focus remains the same. God's kingdom program. Up till now, his stories have illustrated the different responses to the message of the kingdom. Explained why opposition to the kingdom continues 
and even shown the kingdom, though beginning small, will continue to grow and expand. But now Jesus focuses not on the crowds, but on his disciples. What difference should the reality of his coming kingdom make in their lives? In his first story, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field. Now, don't overanalyze the story. What kind of treasure is it? We're not told. Who hid it there? That's not the issue. The basis of the story is the reality of life in Jesus' day. The first National Bank of Nazareth, or Capernaum Farmers Savings and Loan, didn't exist. There was no Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to guarantee savings against financial loss. So if you came into an inheritance, or sold a piece of property, or invested in a business venture that was successful, what did you do with the money? You could keep it in the house, but that's the first place a robber would look. And there were thieves in that day, just as there are today. And word of your good fortune would have spread like wildfire. You needed to find someplace safe to store your newly acquired wealth, a do-it-yourself safe deposit box. When Joshua destroyed Jericho, Achan violated God's command and looted some of the silver and gold from the city. And where did he hide his ill-gotten gain? When he was confronted by Joshua, he confessed, They're hidden in the ground inside my tent. He buried the treasure inside his tent. It didn't take thieves too long before they started looking inside houses for ground that had been disturbed or a flagstone in the floor that appeared to be loose. Not that this stopped people from trying to hide valuables inside their houses. Over the past year, we've reported on at least a half a dozen recent archaeological discoveries where the archaeologists found hordes of gold coins stashed under floors or inside the walls of ancient homes. Now, others tried a different approach. Instead of burying the treasure inside the house, they looked for a place outside on their property to hide their treasure. This made it much more difficult for any would-be thief to locate it. Think of this like a pirate burying his treasure, but without a map. The key to unlock the location of the treasure was hidden inside the mind of the owner. It was a foolproof plan, unless the owner happened to die or get killed. And then, all knowledge of the treasure's location was lost. This evidently happened with enough frequency that the disciples understood the point of the parable. Imagine working in a field, or perhaps even just walking through it, and stumbling on a sealed clay pot. You pry open the top and discover the pot is filled with gold coins. Now, if you take the gold coins, you'd be considered a thief. But if you were to buy the field, you would also be buying anything discovered in the field. And that's when the light bulb goes on and you quickly place the treasure back into its hiding place. You run home, grab anything of value, and hold an impromptu yard sale. That extra change of clothes? How much are you willing to pay for it? My mule, make me an offer. My small flock of sheep, what are you willing to pay? The goal is to convert everything with any value into cash now. And with the funds in hand, you now run to the owner of the field and offer to buy it from him. In Jesus' story, the man willingly gives up his material possessions that up till that very day, he had considered quite valuable. But the treasure hidden in the field was of such greater value that he was willing to trade all of his meager possessions to secure it. And once he was the legal owner, anything found in the field was legally his. Jesus followed his first story with a second one that's very similar. 
This time, the subject of the story is a merchant. Evidently, his specialty was buying and selling pearls. He was a specialist in the field, so he had experience sizing up a pearl's value by looking closely at its size, shape, and luster. And then one day, the unexpected happened. He came across someone selling a pearl unlike any he'd ever seen before. It wasn't just slightly larger or slightly more spherical. It was the largest pearl he had ever seen, dwarfing any other pearl he'd ever bought or sold. And it was absolutely perfect in shape and luster. The merchant tried to hide his enthusiasm. Uh, How much for that particular pearl? The seller named a price he thought was astronomical. And indeed, it was more than the merchant had in cash. But the merchant also knew the true value of the pearl, and it far exceeded the amount being asked. He wanted that pearl, but he needed to raise cash, a lot of cash, right away. Without giving it a second thought, he promised to return with the money. And then he went home, grabbed all the pearls he owned, and visited every business contact on his list. I have a special offer for you today. How much are you willing to spend for this amazing collection of pearls? He sold at a discount, far less than he could have received had he waited for the customers to come to him. But in the end, he raised the funds and purchased the mother of all pearls. He parted with something of value, but he did so willingly to obtain something of far greater value. Two stories, but a single application. God's kingdom might not yet be visible, but Jesus wants us to know it's more valuable than anything else in life. So what do you value today? What do you treasure most? Is it worth more to you than the eternal kingdom of heaven? Or like a treasure hidden in a field, or a pearl beyond value, have you come to understand the true worth of all that God offers through his Son? Fanny Crosby understood it and captured the truth of Jesus' two parables in her song, Give Me Jesus. And I end with her insight into what's really of eternal value. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever, through eternal years the same. Well, maybe as you listen to Charlie's devotional here and that great song from Fanny Crosby we were just quoting a moment ago, You find yourself saying, I'm one of those who needs Jesus, but what do I do? Could I suggest you pick up your phone and talk to a volunteer who would love to talk with you right now at 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost, no obligation, no pressure, just you asking questions about what it means to know Jesus at 888 and the numbers that spell out need him. Well, our time is gone, always too quickly, but we're so glad you We're with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Hope you'll be back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.